1: Welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, S.E. Fleenor, and they've set me loose alone today. What am I gonna do? Who knows? Anything I want! Ah Just kidding. I'm here with a normal interview. <laughs> And I'm so excited today to talk to the amazing creative team behind House of the Queer Bodies, which just launched on Kickstarter yesterday. Don't worry, folks. Hang in here at the end of the episode. We'll talk more about that Kickstarter, some of the cool rewards you can get and why you really need to get out there and support this very cool all ages graphic novel. But first, I'm so excited to be here today talking with Taylor Curry-Smith and Robin Richardson. How y'all doing?
2: Good, thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah. I am Taylor. I am typically a tabletop role-playing game designer by trade, uh, though I have some history in comics, which uh, I suppose we can explore later. And I'm just really excited to get this uh, first comic that I have written out into the world. Yay!
3: And Robin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Robin. I'm a little baby face to the industry for comics, but I've been in it for now over a year. And yeah, I never thought I would be in this industry actually. And I really love to dabble in themes of LGBT and also uh, diversity in cultures and races and stuff like that, because I didn't really grow up with any actual representation of myself.
1: That's awesome. I think I feel like a lot of us who are queer or marginalized across multiple axes um you know we we create our stories because we're like and here's where I see myself now first time here I am I exist and that is is pretty cool. So I, I mean I just want to start there. Robin like what does that look like in house of the queer bodies for you?
3: Well, I was really excited when Taylor basically <laughs> offered me to design the character in in a way that represented where I'm from. And I'm not actually uh, Malay by blood, but when I was a kid, I always wanted to see representation of Malay culture because, you know, that was what was all around me. It was always really hard to be proud of, you know, where I was from because it was never represented in mainly Western media which was always the media that everyone looks at. So I always thought, oh, we're losers, we're lame. And I've always wanted to just have a Malay character, like be part of that representation. That's awesome. I
1: think that's really cool. And so we're talking about Ellen. Uh, She's Mm -hmm. Malay, right? Yeah. Very Mm -hmm. cool.
2: Uh, So House of the Queer Bodies is uh, it's an all-ages graphic novel and what we're kickstarting is the first third of it uh, because the whole thing is going to be like 200 pages. So we're doing it in parts. And it is about Ellen, the uh, main character who's a girl who uh, finds a portal to a world of fairy tales behind her bookcase. So very Narnia themes there. But uh, it's actually based on a book by Catherine Pyle from 1901. So it actually like predates way predates narnia and uh the whole isekai movement that we're seeing now and uh i thought it was just a very cool story when i originally came across it and so she goes into this world of fairy tales and quickly meets mother goose and uh, from there learns of a place where she can go to um, find the story that her grandmother has forgotten. So Ellen has a good relationship with her grandma who always tells her stories, but as her grandmother gets older, she can't remember the stories. And there's this one that her grandmother has just never been able to remember for Ellen. So the story is Ellen going on this quest to this place called the House of the Queer Bodies um, to to find where forgotten stories go and get recycled into new stories, uh, and hopefully she can find that story before it's you know completely gone. And along the way, she encounters some fairy tale familiars. In the first part, she encounters the like uh, five little piggies who you know go to market, have roast beef, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and learn some of that fairy tale world. And uh Jack of the Beanstalk fame. Um, and then throughout the rest, uh, she encounters other characters such as uh Aladdin from Thousand and One Nights, um uh, Fatima from Bluebeard's Bride, uh, as, as well as others on her way eventually to the the house of the the queer bodies. Um and the book is originally called As the Goose Flies, because the whole time she's traveling with Mother Goose's Gander, uh and Ellen and the Gander make up our two main characters. They're the through lines of it all. And I wasn't super happy with that title. Uh, No, like, I mean, obviously, no hate on Catherine Pyle and 1901 book editors. uh, But... (laughs) (laughs) um, Things have changed. (laughs) Yeah. So in in the statement on the page, it talks about how the queer bodies were what Catherine Pyle called... Uh, these people who essentially live beyond the realm of fairy tales uh, and, and rework the the forgotten stories and the different stories into new stories. And one, I just kind of like that as a metaphor for what we're doing here. Like as the goose flies is not a well-known story uh, by any means, but of course the fairy tales that are references are, and we get the opportunity to rework that into a new story into the world, but also I thought it was just such an interesting and like evocative name. And as the Gooseflies doesn't explore why they're called queer bodies specifically, I would assume that because of the time, it just means an unusual or, or, or different or, or something like that. They obviously weren't using queer in the modern sense, but I, I suppose as, as a queer person with uh, you know plenty of body image issues myself. Having that sort of word keyed me in, and I think it like flipped a switch in like in my head that said, "Pay attention." and the way that they're described when she eventually reaches them that that'll be in part three is just beautiful and creative and interesting and and different and and diverse. and I thought that was just so neat, especially in something from from that era. And that that's kind of what ultimately in, in inspired me beyond just my overall love of, of fairy tales. Um, yep, I think that's where I'm done talking. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's great to hear that. I, I remember reading that from your, um, your promotion materials and being like, wow, this is, it's like a really long game of telephone, right? Because it's <laughs> like the mother goose, you know, fairy tales. And then Catherine Pyle sort of reinterprets them in this, Uh, As the Goose Flies, and then y'all come in and give it even another (laughs) layer of reinterpretation. And I think that's really fun because, you know, sometimes we, I'm an editor too, and so I'm constantly talking to people about, like, there there are really no new stories. There's just no story you can tell. And so you got to go tell your story. And that will be, you know, like other stories for lots of reasons because we're all connected. What? So I love the idea of, not trying to reinvent the wheel, but saying, okay, here's this wheel. How could it look different? And how could it be, to your point, Robin, representat- have representation that is completely, I mean, I don't remember any Malay people in any Mother Goose fairy tale. <laughs> I, I, I think that's incredible. So I'm curious for you, Robin, why did you want to bring uh, a Malay character into this sort of traditionally Western story? And what is what does that look like now that it's on the page for you?
3: Well, I think, like I said earlier, that I wanted to bring Malay culture because I never saw it outside of Malaysia. And when designing Ellen, I always had, like, my best childhood friends in mind, like, what they look like, and just thought how excited they might be to see themselves in this character. And also, to have Malay representation... Also involving other fantasy characters that are well-known, like Aladdin, as you said, Taylor, and Jack and the Beanstalk. All of these, like, everybody loves these stories. And honestly speaking, the only recent Malay or I guess even Southeast Asian representation was Ryan, the Last Dragon as a movie. And it was, it was, it wasn't great. (laughs) It was like a hot pot of Southeast Asia. And... It was forgettable, and I just wish that they had handled it the same way they had with Encanto. So yeah, <laughs> and the idea of letting it be culture rich instead of sort of
1: culture appropriative.
3: I don't know if I'd say it was cultural appropriation, but it was just it was just a mishmash, and it's it's kind of. It's hypocritical of me to say this because the, <laughs> because the uh, another project I'm working on is also a mishmash of cultures <laughs> in a fantasy world. So I am a bit of a hypocrite, but I just, I just, I don't know. Not, not a lot of Southeast Asians really cared for it, as far as I mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I hear what you're saying, and I, I was just, uh, I... Ugh, I was very sad recently, and so I caught up on all the animated films I had watched, mm-hmm. and so I saw Ryan, The Last Dragon, and hearing you say that really makes a lot of sense, and yeah, I guess what I was trying to get at with cultural appropriation isn't the right word at all, it's 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 that it's, um it's just not enough. It's like the melting pot lie that we tell in the U.S., right, where it's mm-hmm. like, we're all mixing together, and it's like, nope, we're all people. <laughs> Distinct <laughs> cultures, and those matter, um oh, wow, that's interesting. I you gave me a lot to think about there, Robin. that's
3: and it wasn't bad in by any means. It was just you know not it didn't reach the expectations I had for it,
1: mm, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I think it it makes sense, especially as as you've explained in in your thinking on it, yeah. I'm going to to be thinking on that for a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I want to talk more about Ellen and and House of the Queer Bodies. But before we get into that, I'd love to hear from each of you a little bit about, you like, what's your comic book or graphic novel origin story? Mm -hmm. And like, how did you get into them? And yeah, I think that's it.
2: (laughs) I fell into a vat of radioactive comics.
1: Uh (laughs) Best answer I think we've ever gotten (laughs) to that. So 10 out of 10.
2: So uh my so I I enjoyed comics as a young boy, and that's uh I think that's probably a, a common origin story there. I used to want to make comics and for a couple of different school projects I did like make my own little comics and superheroes. I had a superhero called grayscale who you know couldn't feel anything so therefore he could fight crime and then i found out later that's an actual disability and disabilities don't just give you superpowers and uh so as i moved forward as i as i practiced my own uh art i realized like wow i really want to let other people do art on comics and uh, i got a job sort of early out of community college right I was probably 20, and uh, I got this job at a small comic book uh, talent representation company. So we represented artists who were working at, uh, you know, Marvel, DC, uh, as, as well as Dark Horse. Dark Horse. was kind of one of my main go-to clients, and I was at that company for about six years, and I got a lot of really great experience. Um, unfortunately, the company made some uh, un- unfortunate decision. So they moved into publishing and ultimately, um, board game design. And I suppose if everybody wants to go on a little like a Google journey, I, I don't necessarily want to get too into it here, but the company was called Space Go Productions and they did the Evil Dead 2 comics. And if you've heard of it, the Evil Dead 2 board game, which I got to design, but never saw the light of day because the the company made some decisions about money, such as spending a lot of it on projects that weren't the projects it was supposed to be spending money on. And then it quickly tried to get ahead of itself by trying to get more money from other projects to spend that on other projects. And the whole thing collapsed. And it was probably the most stressful time of my life. And uh, you try to do the best you can under under management that you don't always agree with. But I'm, I'm pretty happy that uh, I kind of separated myself from that and uh i took a big long break from comics i was pretty inundated in the comic world like going to conventions and all of that following along with comic news and just took a pretty big departure from that uh just because of how uh, stressful and and how kind of jaded that that whole experience made i ended up finding finding out that the company had like pretty grossly mispaid and underpaid or just like not followed through on payments on a lot of like the different artists that we work with. So like people that I worked with, yeah, on a daily basis that were just like great and fantastic people. Um, And it's unfortunate because, you know, more often than not, they were from out of country. We worked with a lot of fantastic artists from Brazil. And, you know, part of that is going to be a a cost a living thing, my company liked how or it wasn't my company uh the company that I worked for liked how you could um pay people who are out of country less than people who are in our country would ask for
1: uh, not a unique factor in comics, which is mm-hmm. very concerning,
2: yeah, so it just I left this bad sour taste in my mouth for for comics for a really long time, and uh, I just kind of had to take a break from it all and uh I was able to return to my kind of like also a passion of mine, which was games. Uh, I had been doing kind of like getting into the tabletop role playing and, and LARP scenes locally and, uh, you know, playing different games that were already out there and doing my little homebrew tweaking. And uh, I, along the way came up with an idea of what was going to be my own game called spell the rpg which uses letter tiles so whenever you cast magic you pull like scrabble letters um and and rearrange them and what you spell is literally the magic you cast so if you want to cast a fireball you better spell fireball otherwise you're going to spell fish and then you cast fish and that game i went to kickstarter with uh and that's kind of what launched whimsy machine which is my um production company it's me it's, it's just me and uh Women's Machine Media allowed me to work on games in, in a way that was fun, um, and I got to still work with a lot of really stellar artists along the way. And uh, that's where I was happy. Um, I had comics in the back of my head. Still, um, it's it still is something that I kind of wanted to you know, return to eventually. And House of the Queer Bodies felt like the right choice uh, for a couple of different reasons. The story for for why... I did that one uh, specifically? So um, I am married, and I am uh, very domestic, uh, and, and happily so. So one of the things that I, that I do often, um, or, or used to do before we moved to podcasts was uh, read to my wife to to help her fall asleep. And I would often read from works in the public domain. So I so would just go to like Project Gutenberg, which is a website of works in the public domain. And that's where I just happened across As the Goose Flies. That was my first encounter with it. And the reason that I wanted to do an adaptation for my first, like, I am writing this graphic novel, is because somebody else already did a lot of the hard work of of story and and narrative and, you know, content. And so I just adapted that, made some some tweaks and, and modernizations. And then I brought in editor Jasmine Walls who uh, really helped me because when I first uh, gave her the script for the, the comic, uh, she was like, you you pretty much just turned a book into a script. It's not really writing. No, she nicer than that. Uh, but she really encouraged me to make it your own. Make it, have fun with it, uh, change what you want to change, uh and and when I kind of gave myself permission to do that, I had a lot more fun going through and and you know, deliberately reimagining uh some fairy tales, but also out of love of the fairy tales. I think a lot of times fairy tales get reimagined to be like gritty and dark because they weren't cool enough originally. And I'm like, no, no, these stories are great. They are very good from what they originally are. I just wanted to to see them different out of out of love of what they what they are and what they can be. And also, there were some weird things that happened in the original, like most chapters include Ellen and the Gander encountering a problem that they come up with an interesting solution to overcome. And sometimes the plans that they came up with didn't make a lot of sense in original context, Uh, and especially, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, like um, one of the first chapters is um, saving the little village of fairy tale critters, you know, so like. The, the kitten who lost their mittens um and the and the little piggies uh and stuff there is a mean old mr goat they call him old Shavehead, and that's from a story that i wasn't uh familiar with i kind of wanted to like downplay the shave head thing because that seemed a little bit i don't know like skinhead e i don't know if like obviously that wasn't intentional because it was from the 1901s but you know you got to but uh, she had to save him from this goat who was just, like, mean and cantankerous and was just rude to all the other villagers. Uh, and in the original work, she learns that he is afraid of bees. And so she just, like, goes in there and buzzes at him. Like, goes into his cave and is like, buzz. And he's like, oh, no, bees. Um <laughs>
3: That was very sassy. Oh,
1: no. (laughs) but Whatever shall I do? It's a bee.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And Jasmine was like, you know, this doesn't really make sense. It doesn't really read well. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. I kind of, you know, elevated this story originally in my head. I was like, it's perfect. I'll change nothing. Like, who am I to change a story? And she was like, you... You are the author of this story. <laughs>
1: literally, it's your job. <laughs> like,
2: yeah, like go ahead and do it. So we came up with a new plan. Oh, wow. Plan that so you, what like, was
1: that feeling like, though, when you, you know, you talked a little bit about getting to be freed to make changes and improvements. How did that feel? Did it feel risky or exciting or what?
2: Oh, my God, it was so exciting. It was, I felt powerful.
1: Mm. <laughs> Creatives were all like, I am a god in my own world.
3: <laughs> was it overwhelming, though?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I think, uh, Robin, as we're going to encounter in in chapters later, I felt like the ones that we encounter were pretty minor changes. So like Jack and the Beanstalk, uh, which is chapter four, which is also going to be in part one. Um, we didn't have to change too much, but when we encounter the Aladdin chapter and we encountered the Bluebeard's Bride chapter, those ones definitely we, we took aside and, and completely... Overhauled Because, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And the history of, you know, Western depiction of Tales of the Arabian Nights has always been dubious.
3: It's funny because I'm half Arab, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I had never thought that it was Middle Eastern. <laughs> like, I, I see it now, like what, like it was meant to be. But it's just, wow, they really westernized it.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, okay, and so here's the wild thing about Aladdin specifically. So in the story and in a lot of the 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 works from the, the Tales of the Arabian Nights, it will do the sort of version of, you know, in a, in a far-off land to sort of distance itself from modern. We see that, you know, like once upon a time in a kingdom far, far away, right? You get that in, in, mm-hmm. in, in Western European fairy tales all the time. But in a lot of those, they'll say in one of the distant cities of China. And China was kind of like a go-to stand-in for in a far-off land. Uh, So, Aladdin is canonically set in China. Um, But like, (laughs) yeah, but clearly it is not. Um, All the languages used about like the sultan and the caliphate and the vizier are all very deliberately Arab culture. Like the the inclusion of jinn and just all of it. And, and so that was that was one of the challenges. I mean, you, you mentioned the kind of cultural mishmash, and uh, in fantasy, there's such a, a horrible history of uh, like when I think of the Dungeons and Dragons and other things like that. Whenever there's the um, the Asian supplement, it's always like the the exotic Orient, and it just combines <laughs> all of the Eastern and, and Southeast Asian just. Themes and aesthetics and like words, and just blends it all together and and puts it over there. And so, looking at Aladdin as uh, like on the one hand, it is a deliberate crossover in that it is an an Arab story set allegedly in China and then, you know, (laughs) also told through the lens of history. And like, I, I, I want to evoke that. That's, that's definitely something that I'm bringing in a sensitivity reader for. Uh, that's not until part two, so we haven't gotten there yet. Like sensitivity readers are, are fantastic and I am so thankful for them. Uh, I first encountered that as just like a member of a creative team that could be part of a project uh, through games and game writing. Just somebody that like, please help me from putting my foot in my mouth.
3: Just hold your hand a little bit.
2: <laughs> yeah, I am. I am a white cis man. I will fail. And, and so having the sensitivity readers uh, come in and and help us kind of restructure stories like that to be, um, you know, faithful to the original, but also faithful to our goal of reimagining. But then also not looking at every single chapter as something that I have to take the sledgehammer to, because, you know, some of the chapters are solid. They're good. Um, and I just have to change a little bit. How did
1: you find that balance?
2: If they're based on Western European fairy tales, I felt a little bit more licensed to just (laughs) go in there myself. Totally, Um, totally. (laughs) Yeah, you know, the balance was hard. Uh, And I think it was just kind of bringing in my own sort of like critical reading skills from English 101. And just like, is this story communicating what it's trying to communicate as best it can? And that's kind of nice because each chapter is its own little vignette in a way like it's connected and um, there's the the through line of the entire story of uh you know it's it's very fairy tale in that as ellen helps these different people um, she gets different things uh, they'll like give her little tokens of thanks and those do all become relevant later in you know very fairy tale fashion <laughs> there is actually uh, talking about differences between them on the reread while I was adapting it I get to like one of the final chapters and it talks about this chain like a gold chain that she was given by uh one of the like dwarfs of snow white and rose red fame and i realized that in that original chapter nobody ever gave her a chain like in in the finale she is calling upon this object that she was given as a gift but it she was never actually given it that never happened uh it was just like an oversight i guess in the original so um that's that's one of my uh, elements of
1: plot hole. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, it's it's a good it's a good book, but it's not perfect. It's not unalienable.
1: <laughs> That's awesome. Well, it sounds like it, it's been a process of almost rediscovering the source material as
3: you sort of recreate it at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. I really like that you you read to your wife and that's how you discovered it. That's really cute. That's like the cutest thing I've ever heard. I know, like Oh, my God. I'm devastated. I'm de- I tried
1: to read to my partner. I tried listening to audiobooks with my partner at night to like wind us down. That bitch can fall asleep in two seconds. I am sitting there for an hour <laughs> listening to a, a book being like, oh, my God, what's going to happen next? And I'm like, turning up. I'm getting more excited. I'm not calming down at all. So...
2: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America, NA member FDSC.
1: Hey there, listeners. Do you like the pod? Do you like our general vibe? Do you want to see us eat meals, survive, thrive in the world, come back with the podcast, be cool all the time, make money? Get cars. I don't know. At that point, I was just... Buy new shoes. Buy new shoes. Get a pony.
3: Invest in Bitcoin. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm going to go ahead and argue with that last one. But otherwise, I am there with you. I'm
1: not going to invest in Bitcoin. But hey, if you want to see us, you know, be financially soluble, (laughs) please join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash bitches on comics. We have tons of content there. We have, I think it's like a hundred back episodes. So those are things that range from talking about individual independent comics that we like, as, you know, each of us on our own together, to talking about why Nona Earp, why we loved it so much. Yes, we had a bonus episode about it before we had a mainstream episode about it. Who could say why? Why not? We have our cage match episodes, which are just so wild we just compare two Nicolas Cage films and then decide which is cagier and it's probably the highlight of my life if I'm being honest (laughs) we also have our intoxicated comics special that we do where we get a little bit woohoo and then talk about weird (laughs) comics sometimes we have a great time and sometimes we're like what have we done (laughs) and either way it's pretty funny We also have exclusive interviews with smaller creators, all kinds of different stuff. We basically use our Patreon as an opportunity to put more good comics info out there. Oh my goodness, a very pretty bird just landed outside my window.
3: Oh, in this spot. We got to talk about this bird. All
1: right, let's get through it. This bird has a little red head. Oh, it flew away. Beautiful little bird. Thank you, bird. So, yeah, you know, come join us on Patreon so I can look at more birds. We're at patreon.com slash bitches on comics. You got to spell it out. You can't go to patreon.com and then search us because we're, I don't know. We curse too much. We're some. They're like, you sound (laughs) like some real bitches. So we're not going to make you searchable. And we were like, fair. Fair. Harsh, but fair. Yeah, I deserve that. I deserve it. You know, yeah. Robin, we didn't really get to hear your sort of origin story around comics, did we? No. Okay, I would love to hear it, because I just, I always want to know, like, how do people get started? It's so interesting, because everyone's so different.
3: Well, I was always into comics as a kid. You know, I often read comics over children's books. I mean, I did read some prose books as too because my dad forced me, but... Um, you know, I was into things like Baby Blues, Archie Comics, Asterix and Obelix. Those were like my jam as a kid. And then when I got more into TV shows and anime and stuff, I started reading fan fiction. And then I started making comics for said fan fictions, which was fun as heck. And that's when I decided, you know, I'm... i I kind of want to do this. I didn't know if I could make money from it because I was a silly little child. But I was like, you know, I want to make a comic, even if it's for free. (laughs) And then after I left school, I went to like one of the top art schools in Malaysia because there's not a lot of options. And it was horrible. Originally, like the syllabus mentioned that they were going to have like a section on comics, but they took it out. And, you know, never changed that on the site. So I went through basically four years of hell to learn how to be a concept artist for the film and entertainment industry. So it was like a factory. It put me in hospital. It, you know, caused a friend to have a seizure. Oh my God. Yeah, it was, it's akin to tiger parents, but as a school, we would have just way too much work and not enough time to do it. Literally, like if we missed two classes, we would automatically fail and have to retake it. And as I came out of the hospital, I showed my um, the little doctor's note because I was in the hospital because of them. And I was like, I missed a week of, of classes because of this, because, you know, I was actually forced to miss a week. And they literally told me they didn't care that I was absent and it was going to count as an absence. And I was like devastated. So after I came out of that, by the way, the whole graduation exhibition was just a, like everybody's like the same stuff. Right. Like there was no originality in anyone's work, including mine. I remember when my parents came to see all of it, they were like, everything is the same. And I was like, I know (laughs) we were literally trained to be the same. And then I came to the UK to do a degree because I was just so upset by that experience. And it was just completely different. I took I did a degree in illustration. And there was so much exploration, like, you know, I got to do comics, I got to do animations, I got to do uh, screen printing in like really good spaces. And it was so freeing because each project would have a very fair amount of time. And, you know, I'd finish it in like two weeks because I was trained to be fast. And I I struggled a lot because I had a generic style. Um, sure, I'm a chameleon. I can basically mimic any style I want, but I never had a style of my own. And that was one of my biggest issues in university. And they would just keep trying to push me. And I'm like, I can give you any style you want. What do you want from me? Just tell me. And (laughs) they're just like, be yourself, dude. Do you explore? And I'm like, I don't know what this means. (laughs) And (laughs) And even like up till the very end, I still thought in my head, I was gonna be a concept artist because that's all I knew. Even even with all this exploration and freedom in my head, I was like, well, I was trained to be a concept artist. There is nothing else I can do. I am useless everywhere else. And I think right before I graduated, I was like, you know what? No, <laughs> I am not going to just kill myself by going into the concept art industry because it is rigorous and not fun and... <laughs> I don't want to be there. It's too competitive. It's scary. And I've, I've already been through it. I'm, no, no, no. <laughs> so then I had to figure out how to get into the comics industry. And pretty much right off the bat, after I graduated, I was thrusted into it. <laughs> I, I didn't even know how it happened. It just did. I was like, well, I guess I'm here now. And now I have an agent and now things are happening. So everything's moving very fast. <laughs>
1: You're on the fast track. You know what I really love about both of your origin stories is... You you told us about the hard parts, like the dark nights of the soul you both went through, you know, Robin, <laughs> you in school, and and Taylor, you at, at that company you worked for. And, you know, I feel like the dark night of the soul was always such a part of my own origin story. I'm like, and then I wondered who <laughs> I was for four years. Yeah. Um, you know, like, I think that's really beautiful. So I just, I love that. I love when people are like, let me tell you the truth. It wasn't all Skittles and rainbows, okay? It was I, mostly
3: trauma. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right.
1: (laughs) Which is also very apt for fairy tales.
2: (laughs) Yep, (laughs) we laugh so we don't cry.
1: (laughs) Isn't that the truth? It's like, you know, let me tell you the darkest thing that ever happened to me while I giggle. Because, you know, I'm here, still here, still kicking. So yeah, you know, Robin, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the art and style of House of the Queer Bodies. Because it feels both distinctly fairy tale, distinctly comic well maybe not both and then also distinctly <laughs> modern and like this interesting twist on all of these so how did you find that you talked a little bit about trying to find your own style how did you find that for this this project that's literally just my
3: comfort style <laughs> that's just the one i fall back on that's the easiest to work with another person i'm working with when they hired me mentioned how they picked me because my style wasn't too american and it wasn't too european <laughs> Because it was a superhero thing. And they were like, in America, everything's way too realistic. And in Europe, everything's way too crazy. And I was like, cool. (laughs) I guess that's me too. But I think a lot of times, I guess people pick me up because I can do anything. (laughs) And I kind of want to have a bit more of a just sort of soft, I guess. I want a soft look for this book. Something that's very easy on the eyes. Yeah, that's a good description. And something that, I don't know, can warm your heart in certain parts. Something that's not too gritty with the lines.
1: Yeah, I was going to say it was gentle. It felt like kind of walking into, like what I imagine it would feel like walking into Narnia, right? I assume the light is not the same as my light. I assume it's softer. I I assume everything (laughs) feels a little more pillowy. Like I feel like they have less gravity than we do in Narnia. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like that's the feel of your comic.
3: My tool, my weapon for this comic is the Gaussian blur. <laughs> so, My weapon for this comic. is <laughs> my I weapon. I love that. I love <laughs> that, is, that. That is what I'm doing differently to not like to other things, I guess.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, you know, I want to come back to something you talked about sort of at the top of the episode, Taylor, which is this sort of reimagining of the queer bodies, right? Queer was Mm -hmm. certainly, we can almost guarantee, being used very much in the old school, like odd, out of the ordinary, (laughs) unusual sense versus like what we all are, right? We're in a different way. So what I, I want to talk about is why are fairy tales so fucking gay? And here's why I ask that. And I ask this to everyone who comes on the oh pod to talk about fairy tales. <laughs> we talked to Trung Lee Wen, who is the author of The Magic Fish, the creator of The Magic Fish, author and illustrator, on episode 98. And then we talked to Yoshi Yoshitani, who did the Tarot of the Divine Deck and the accompanying book that the name is escaping me. Sorry, Yoshi. On episode 95. And both of them talked about you know, the different ways that like, you know, how fairy tales are always like, nothing's quiet as it seems. There's always hidden identities and, you know, the pauper is the prince and the, the destitute person is uh, secretly Zeus, you know, like all those sort of tricksy little moments that happen in fairy tales. And I guess myth, I just decided to roll right into it. And I'm curious for you all, why do you think that feels like such a queer kind of story and then, what do we gain from making that queerness explicit and not just subtext?
2: Oh, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, uh, so I think that idea of you know having to present as you know something that doesn't always match your identity as you as you understand it for yourself, and you know, as a queer person myself who is in a relationship with a uh, cis woman as a cis man. So I, I try not to occupy too much space in like outwardly queer spaces just because though I know my experience, I know that it's not always my immediately visible lived experience, if, if that makes sense. You might not point at me and be like, yeah, that guy's, that guy's queer. But uh, I, I think it's interesting because when it comes to the queer bodies, we don't really have too many of those stories of like secret reveals. And this is something that's just kind of clicking into my head right now. I I think maybe because it was originally um, like a children's book. So it was like specifically a children's book version of these fairy tales. A lot of it is as it seems. I think the part that kind of reads queer in that way is the, the sort of love and companionship that different characters have for each other the the story of jack and the beanstalk that we're doing it's jack living with his mom the it's like after the events of the giant and the beanstalk all happened and they can hear the giant's widow still stuck in the in the cloud kingdom and in, in the land of the clouds and specifically jack's mom has a certain like yearning for this woman who's up there still and i ended up folding in another fairy tale to kind of account for for who she was and uh I think the 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 story was Letica and she was a woman who was like captured by the son to be uh you know married against her will, as is very often a, a theme in, in fairy tales of get
1: yeah stolen Ooh. and now
2: you must be married to this evil guy.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, fairy tales have you know what, they need to go see a psychotherapist. That's all I'm gonna
2: say. Really? Yeah. <laughs> um so in this one, it made sense to me. To have a clearer element of love between Jack's mom and the the giant's widow, and we don't have a lot of space to explore like visible manifestations of, of relationships, and, and, and that's probably one of my worries when it comes to queer bodies. Is like it's called House of the Queer Bodies, but like, do we have enough like on screen queerness? And I th- and I think a lot of what I try to communicate in there. Is that the love that kind of connects people who have different experiences and identifying those through lines in the story of, of the, the love and compassion where you might not otherwise expect it to be? But then also just kind of letting it be like, yeah, Jack's mom is in love with this person who used to be, uh, you know, from their area, but was stolen away by a giant, and now she hears her sing. And that that kind of yearning that already existed there can just it feels like like a queer love, especially when you kind of like look into the history of then uh, lesbian depiction in literature, how for like the, the 50s and 60s, you weren't allowed to have queer stories like specifically lesbian stories unless they were tragedies. And so that's kind of the whole like tragic lesbian trope there is like if you wanted a a same-sex relationship in the novel that you're publishing, one of them had to die at the end because it wasn't allowed by the publishers. We had to prove
1: it wasn't good. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And and so that kind of like forms this trope. And so to be able to take that trope of like, oh no, tragic lesbians, it was like, yeah, but it all works out at the end because we get to do that
1: tripping on the idea of Jack's mom and the woman stolen by the giant having a sapphic relationship. My heart is so, like, full by that idea. I think that's so cool. I love that. You know, and and I think... It's hard, right? Because when we use the term queer, we mean so many things. And that's why we have that term, right? It's it's fun to have a term that's like, ha, it's a smokescreen. You have no idea what I mean. Do you, straight people? Perfect. Just the way I like it. Uh, because it, you know, queerness is about sex and, and relationships for some queer people, but it's also about community. It's also about chosen family. It's also about self-discovery. And so all of those things feel really relevant to fairy tales as well, in, in, in my mind. And I'm curious if any of those pieces, I'm guessing they show up in the book, but I'm curious if without giving too much away, if there are <laughs> other, you know, elements of, of queerness beyond sort of, you know, romantic relationships that you would say you, you see in the book.
2: Yeah, um, I think kind of going along that lines of, like, sometimes queerness is, you know, that sapphic relationship between Jack's mom and the giant's widow. Um, But, like, I also think of those things where it was, like, a meme format for a minute that was, like, sometimes a family is a little girl, her goose companion, and the grandma she's trying to find a story for, right? (laughs)
1: Yes, I love that. (laughs)
2: I think that story and then just, like, letting Ellen be this adventure character encountering the different fairy tales and the different ways that they have formed these communities, both, like, I don't want to necessarily say, like, independent of gender because I think sometimes there's the idea that in media depiction of non-binary, it's usually, like, yeah, we have a non binary character. It's the robot or it's the alien. It's it's the the different one. Um and, and that's not something that I
1: <laughs> Yeah. Ben Kahn, who's uh sometimes guest on the pod, um, creator of Renegade Rule and a bunch of other cool comics, they always say uh techno non binary, where it's like, it doesn't really count because they're a robot or a synthesid or whatever. So yeah, that 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 trope is not great.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's not necessarily something that like, I want to fall into with. Like, they're fairy tale characters, so of course like, they're uh, outside of gender. And it's like, well, that's not true. They're, they're, there's definitely gendered characters, but we get to kind of tell these stories of communities that might not look like you know, the, the Atomic family. The, sometimes a family is five little piggies who, who live together in a little hobbit home under the hill and our good neighbors with the single mom cat who has several kittens who who can't keep track of their mittens. And I think through some of those lenses, we have families that don't necessarily fit the molds that oftentimes we are expected families to look like and how that is still good and valid.
1: I love that. That's beautiful. I'm curious, Robin, for you, how did manifesting, you know, you know, something else I read in the in the press release or maybe the description of the book is, you know, there's also a lot of attention paid to to body positivity. And so I'm curious, you know, how does that manifest in your art? The sort of I'm guessing some body diversity, but then also queer and trans identities. How did you tackle that in in portrayals that maybe where it's like, I don't know if this is happening and it's OK if it is. But, you know, not all you can't always have a character be like, I'm non-binary look at me. (laughs) So, you know, but there's ways to show that maybe, I don't know. I'm just curious, I guess, about the art in that regard.
3: Well, um, you know, in terms of things like those that are trans, you know, the little subtle hints of like binder or showing how they looked in the past before maybe they started hormones, that can all sort of tie it together and make it quite clear um other than you know just outwardly saying it. I'm I'm not always a fan of characters just outwardly saying it. I don't mind it if it's done tastefully and done well. It's just that sometimes it feels like a oh, you know, that's that, I guess. <laughs> and there's nothing that sort of backs it up in any way. Not that there should be a lot to back it up. I have a lot of a uh, sort of criticism to how some uh gender identities or LGBT identities are handled in media and (laughs) they've come to the the right
1: place. (laughs) Uh, We have a bone to pick about a lot of that as well. So you are singing my song.
3: I was going to mention earlier that one of my favorite things about, you know, having LGBT characters in fantasy settings is that they're going to be involved in a very rich story that isn't revolving solely on their identity. Like, I don't, I I like that there are stories that are based around someone's identity. It's very good to like, you know, learn about yourself through that way too. But there's such a lack of stories where, you know, they're anything more than that. You know, it's always, it's always that they're you know trans or gay and that's that's just the extent of their character you know you st- they they're not being built on um their relationships i either end in tragedy like you mentioned earlier or they're they're not real and you know these are real people people you know people who identify differently are are still people you know they don't have to be different in any way and i think with fantasy it helps because you know, let's say you put the same character in a more realistic setting, a lot of the times they're going to use that realistic setting to put in sort of traumatic situations that might happen in real life or, you know, things that are important to show other people. But, you know, it gets quite exhausting that, you know, every bit of representation for LGBT people is used as a lesson or is used as... Yeah, and it can be traumatizing, right? It's just like... Uh. Yeah, sometimes people just want to sit down and read, like, a book that has someone they can see themselves in. But, you know, they're more than just their identity. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, we, I always think of that as, like, casual queerness or casual mm-hmm. transness, where it's like, we're everywhere because we're everywhere. That's just, like, mm-hmm. a fact. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, we are everywhere. We're your neighbors. We're your bosses. <laughs> we're your friends. Like, And sometimes you know, and sometimes you don't, you know, that's the other piece I I sort of heard in what you were saying is like, some trans people are stealth. And so the idea of, you know, I'm trans is like horrible because A, straight people and cis people don't have to do, I'm cis, you know, (laughs) so. Yeah,
3: exactly.
1: I think it's really exciting. You both have put so much intention and thought into House of the Queer Bodies and work, so much work. Mm-hmm. So I'm so excited that your Kickstarter launched yesterday. I was thinking maybe now you both could talk a little bit about what the Kickstarter is looking like. And then if you have any rewards you want to pump up or particularly highlight, we'd love to hear about them.
2: I was very excited about this Kickstarter and I actually put the page together um, in November
1: Oh, you've just been sitting on it then.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I am really excited about this project. Uh, this is going to be, you know, part one of three. We we divided up the, the 12 chapters into little chunks of four. And uh, this first part, um, we are doing both a digital comic uh, for a reward as well as a, a print edition, a sort of limited edition. And I, I think that was important to me because... I just really like holding books. It feels like a, a cliche thing, but there's such a tactile, brain goes good feeling of holding a book. Agreed. Um yeah. <laughs> you know, especially something that you've worked on to be able to say like I I did this one, but uh since it's uh you know, destiny is to be a a complete single graphic novel um and then that's the one that I'm going to uh you know, move forward with a larger scale distro with the uh, individual parts get to be kind of um, like special limited edition because they're kind of existing just for the sake of the the, the Kickstarter there. I know other fun, exciting thing was, um, I I hope I didn't twist Robin's arm too much, but they will be doing some commissions as one of the the higher tiers. Uh, And I think that's just a a really exciting thing that I I like to be able to have as as part of a, a project because... I think people will fall in love with the art style, as I have. And I think being able to see either yourself or your friends or just whatever it is, your favorite character in that same style of the, the world of House of the Queer Bodies. I, I, I think that's uh, a fun little treat.
1: Uh, truly, I am so excited that that's going to happen. So you're running, you've got your uh, Kickstarter campaign running for about a month. Is that right?
2: Yep, just over a month. Um, I, I always like to, to round up so end can end on a Friday at the end of the week. It just, I think I, I read something once. I was like, ain't your Kickstarter on a Friday. And my brain was like, sure.
1: Done. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, so it'll be running until uh, March 11th. And uh, we'll be doing some exciting things along the way. There's some stretch goals. There are a couple of guest artists along the way who are doing some pretty fantastic little bonuses. uh, Like extra contents. Yes. So we are doing some little acrylic charms by uh, Mo Daphne, And they're just like super cute little, like uh, the the first one that we're starting out with, it's like um, Ellen and the gander doing a selfie um, (laughs) kind of perspective. And so like Ellen knows what she's doing because she's a child of... You know, the modern age uh, is what alpha generation at this point, like they, they were born with phones uh, and, um, you know, the gander who is a fairy tale creature. And so he's making this like a goofy face. And so when Mo sent that art over like that's perfect, I had like I wouldn't have thought of, about like that specific pose, but it's so fun. And then uh, we have Leslie, a supernova, doing um, a postcard. And oh my God, Robin, I just got in the art for the, the work in progress, like literally this morning. And it is blowing my mind. Oh. I got to show you that. <laughs> um, and then um, Katie uh, Flight is doing uh, like a little sticker sheet. And they have like a really... Kind of like warm and like texture. I I I don't know the words to describe art, but it's this uh, a really fun art style of Ellen the Gander and Mother Goose as just cute little stickers. Uh, and and those are all things that can be uh, included along with uh, the book. And as we of course unlock more of those hidden stretch goals and stuff, there are uh, potential for more like charm designs, more postcard designs, more sticker sheet uh, designs.
1: So fun.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'm really excited about it. I
1: love it. Well, you know, I know the Kickstarter uh, URLs are long, so we won't have you spill it out here on the pod. But (laughs) listeners, it will be in the show notes. So wherever you're listening to this episode, if you click the little ellipses next to the short description, it'll pop open and we will have a link to that Kickstarter. Is there anything you want folks to keep in mind as they head over to that Kickstarter? Is there a particular, you know, tier you're excited about? I mean, those commissions sound amazing. (laughs) Anything else?
2: Yeah, so there is a uh, early bird tier.
1: Ooh.
2: So hopefully that's still available by the time you're listening to this.
1: Go get that early bird tier, people. Get it while it's there.
2: I I suppose, and this is going to be on the page, um, but uh, I I suppose I want to take a moment to kind of speak to... uh, In the end of last year, uh, Kickstarter did make uh, an announcement that they were looking into blockchain technology. Um, And I just want to make a statement that I am not about that. I don't want NFTs to be part of my situation and like the structure behind crypto. And so uh, I had to make the decision that I had already um, made this Kickstarter page. I had already planned this. Um, I had already... Uh, You know, had things in motion when that announcement came out, and and nothing is uh, actually solid on on Kickstarter's part yet. So I don't feel like I am directly doing that. But um, also, the thing that I you know said on Twitter was that. This is unfortunately a direction that a lot of companies are going, including PayPal and Twitter. They've been doing that for a while now. So I understand that there are some people choosing to not participate in Kickstarter because of that decision. And I would ask those people to consider if the other companies that they are choosing to boycott are also... like If they are choosing to do that for all companies that are associated with like looking into blockchain technology... And if all of them affect independent creators as much as Kickstarter does, because not all of us have options.
1: I'm actually really glad you said that, Taylor, because I, I think, you know, there's something that Sarah and I grapple with a lot. You know, there are lots of problematic platforms <clears throat> And people have to use those tools. They're the tools that exist. You know, it's like it's like being like, oh, Marvel did a racist thing once. I will never read a Marvel comic again. And it's like, yeah, fair enough. That's a call you can make. But I guarantee anybody who's publishing comics has done a racist thing in the past that's been around that long.
2: (laughs) Right. And to use that example, um, like what about all of the other people who might be working on a Marvel comic who, you know, are doing their, their their best. And so it's something where, like, I am actively looking into other options. I've already found another option for um, game platforming that I'm, I'm planning to do a, a reprint for um, one of my games here uh, later in the year.
1: But House of the Queer Bodies was already in process. Like, that that's... Yeah. So I get that. I, I think people will hear you out and understand, and I'll certainly be supporting you all on Kickstarter. So... It's it's fair. I mean, I'm glad you made the the. I'm glad you explained because I think it will be on people's minds. Because yeah, I've seen a lot about this um, all over <laughs> the Twitterverse. So I, I think it's 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 good to talk about. But you know. You do the best you can. It's all we can all do. I didn't create the tools. You didn't create the tools. I didn't create capitalism. You didn't create capitalism. (laughs) We're just trying to live within a system that is super fucked up. Our listeners will be like, oh, SE's on another capitalism rant. And you're right. I am, as always, on a capitalism rant. So Robin, Taylor, I would love to just, you know, be able to share where people can find you on social media if you're looking for more followers or also if you want to share your websites.
2: Um, I am on Twitter at Taylor underscore C S as T-A-Y-L-O-R underscore C S. And my website is uh, whimsymachine.media. I design games, I don't design websites. Um, so please be gentle with me. Uh, and that has links to anywhere else that you might find my content. Uh, currently, I have uh, a bunch of games out there in the wild that you can either own in physical version or um, the, the digital version. So that's on itch.io and rpg and et cetera, et cetera. Links are on the website.
3: Um, you can find me on either at Robinillo, R-O-B-I-N-I-L-L-O, or at underscore Robinillo, um, the underscore on Twitter and Instagram. And I think everywhere else is just regular Robinillo. And my website is robinillo.com. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and listeners, if you didn't have a pen out, don't worry. Again, if you just click those three ellipses on the short description of this episode, we have links to Robin and Taylor's social media accounts, their websites, and of course, the House of the Queer Bodies Part 1 Kickstarter. Taylor, Robin, thank you so much for being here today. It's been an absolute delight to get to talk queerness, fairy tales, and this amazing game of telephone that has resulted (laughs) in this awesome new comic, House of the Queer Bodies. I wish you all the best with this Kickstarter. I'm already on your Kickstarter, I guarantee it. And I'm kickstarting the crap out of y'all because I believe in you. <laughs> so uh, listeners, if you got a few bones, go support Robin and Taylor in this awesome all-ages graphic novel. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, listeners. We couldn't be here without you. Uh, you know the joke. Of course we could, but it would be awkward. For our patrons, thank you. My God, thank you. I don't know how we would do anything without you. Mostly by crying, I think. So thank you so much for being here and supporting us. Robin Taylor, again, thank you. You are incredible. Kate, thanks for editing our sound. You are, as always, the person who makes us sound like we know what we're doing. Because maybe we do, maybe we don't. You'll never know, listeners, because Kate makes us sound like we do. All right, everybody, have a great day. Stay safe out there.
3: Thank you for having us.
1: Absolutely thank you. Yeah. A pleasure. Thank you for listening to Bitches on Comics. We are a bi-weekly podcast where we talk to your favorite comics and pop culture creators and critics about what matters to them in comics and pop culture, as you might have guessed. You can follow us on Twitter at, at @bitchesoncomics and on Instagram at, at @bitchesoncomics. Our website is brace yourself bitchesoncomics.com if you go there you can listen to any of our episodes and we've got other shit that we put on tabs I don't remember what it is I am in charge of updating the website
3: however so good luck thanks for the heads up I'll go to this website now if you'd like to support the podcast you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts I'm Sarah Century and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter, and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm Essie Fleenor. and
1: you can learn more about me at seflenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at se underscore Fleenor.
3: Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is
1: recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization.